And today, love closes accounts. 1 Corinthians 13 is our text all month long. We took the first three verses last Sunday. Today, we go from four down through seven. One thing that 1 Corinthians 13 speaks to is closing accounts. You really get into that if you pay attention. It is a practice that must be cultivated today because there are people being eaten alive because they're not closing accounts, holding bitterness, jealousies, envies, and the like, and not getting rid of it. I want you to look with me at some of the things that these verses say, just as kind of an exegesis on some of these verses that are in front of us for this message. Love does not envy, verse 4 says. Now what does that mean? It means that love does not begrudge others their positions, their goods, or their spiritual gifts. Why is it that when others are blessed, we have the tendency to say, I wish that was me. I wish I had that. And we move into a violation of God's word for life by envying that which other people receive be it material things, spiritual gifts, or even positions. Love does not envy. It closes the account and says, God bless them, I'm glad for them, and I will live with what God gives to me. Are you practicing that? Verse 5 says, love does not behave rudely. I wonder if this week you have experienced a violation of this statement be it in the supermarket, a restaurant, or maybe even in your own home. Love makes us more tactful and polite than we once were, more interested in the needs of others and less taken up with our own. There's an awful lot of rudeness in the world today, and it stems from people wanting their way. And they don't care, really, about the rights of others or the position of others. Love does not behave rudely. Verse 5 says, it is not provoked. Now, in my interpretation of this, it simply says, love does not experience temper tantrums. Or, if you want to put it another way, love doesn't fly off the handle. Boy, he really flew off the handle yesterday. We need to put that into a biblical context. He was provoked outside of love because Paul says that love is not provoked. Let's put it on the positive side. Love is a good-natured spirit. When you walk in a room, does the sun shine or night fall? Do people say, oh, wonderful, there he is, or there she is. We're better because they're here. Or do they say, oh, no. <laughs> Verse 5 said, love thinks no evil. Speaks of trust. Dealing so often with marriage problems, 
I will ask, do you trust your mate? And often they say no. If he's 30 minutes late, trouble. Because in the mind, they're thinking evil. Love doesn't think that way. You don't fill your mind with mean thoughts. Love does not keep track of the injuries suffered. Why is it that we do? So often we write them down. We can list them. We can put them in our diary. And unfortunately, our pencil that writes all that down doesn't have an eraser. God's pencils have erasers. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. He doesn't even remember them. Why do we? Love thinks no evil. How much happier we would be if we closed out some of the accounts that we have been keeping. 30 years old, some of them. Verse 6 says, love does not rejoice in iniquity. Why do we want to hear the bad news rather than the good news? I told you so. I knew it. That is the tendency of humankind. But it is not God's way. Love does not rejoice in iniquity. Verse 6 says, love rejoices in the truth. Love finds a way of excusing the faults of others and looking at the good side, finding the truth. Is that the kind of love you're living with and experiencing? Love closes accounts. Verse 7 has an amazing statement. It says, love believes all things. A challenge to believe the best and create a spirit of trust. Love looks ahead to a better day. God's way is this way. Are you creating a spirit of trust by this practice, believing all things? Verse 7 says, love endures all things. You mean in my home I can endure? Yes, through love. Love that closes accounts. You mean in my office I can endure? Yes, if you understand God's kind of love. 1 Corinthians 7 says that the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Amazing. Where you have one who's following the way of the Lord and the other that is not, the one that does sanctifies the home for the other one, and vice versa if it's the other mate that is a believer and this one is not. Be it the wife or the husband, they sanctify that home by their faith in God. Love endures all things. Love doesn't quit. Love doesn't say, I've had it. Love experiences tenacity. Many of us have inherited the ability to keep the accounts open God says, shut them. I will not forgive him. I will not forgive her. I will not let this thing go. Why are we that way? I read an interesting account of a newly married couple. He was observing his wife in the kitchen fixing the first ham in their marriage. And he noticed that she cut off a few inches from the end of the ham 
And as he watched, it seemed so senseless to him. So he asked her, honey, why did you cut that off the end of the ham? And she said, well, I really don't know, but my mother always did it that way. So then she got puzzled, and they called her mother. And over the phone, her mother said, well, my mother always did it that way, and I just do it because she did, I guess. Well, they were the kind that wanted to find out the bottom line, so they called up Grandma, and the old venerable one said, well, I always had to cut off a bit of the end because my pan was too small. <laughs> and it hit me how we're always prone to do what we have seen done. But what 1 Corinthians 13 says, you've got to change. You've got to quit cutting off the end of the ham if your pan is big enough. Don't do it the way you have observed. Do it the way God has challenged you to do it. That's what this is all about. We haven't seen a good example, maybe. We haven't seen a good practice of it, but God is saying it can be done and he'll help us to do it. Now, my first point today is this. Love brings us together so love can keep us together. The question is how? And there's only one way that I have ever found in this world, and that is through the author and finisher of my faith. The writer to the Hebrews said that Jesus Christ initiates faith and Jesus Christ is able to complete or finish our faith. God's love is always working in us from the moment he confronts us to the moment we stand in his presence. His love is working in us. His love found us and his love keeps us. That's the marvel of our relationship with Jesus Christ. Now Paul said... I have learned to get along whether I have much or little. I know how to live with nothing or with everything. I have learned to be content whether full or hungry. I can do everything God asks me to do with the help of Christ who strengthens me. Philippians chapter 4. Have you experienced that? Are you living in that kind of revelation? Love initiates, love keeps us going. It does not stop here at the beginning stages. It moves along through the vicissitudes of life until we finally stand in the presence of him who hath redeemed us for eternity. That's what 1 Corinthians 13 is about. Now, this is what you have to remember in order to bring it to pass. 1 Peter 4.8 Love overlooks a multitude of sins. I thought that was interesting coming from the Apostle Peter, who was a married man. Before he was converted to Christ, I'll bet he was a real stinker at home. I doubt any of you women here could have lived with Peter. Brash, arrogant, outspoken. And I'm sure as he thought back over his life, and particularly in his marriage, now that he's serving the Lord and filled with the Holy Spirit, he said, love overlooks a multitude of sins. 
And then he added this in verse 9, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. I can just see him, the biggest complainer on the block. The catch wasn't big enough, the fish weren't long enough, the meal wasn't warm enough, his wife wasn't loving enough. I'll bet he was a real griper. But when he met the lover of his soul, Jesus Christ, he said, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Love closes accounts. I was reading about turkeys the other day. You get illustrations out of even the farm sometimes. I didn't know this about turkeys, but I was pleased to find out because now it helps me to know why we are called turkeys sometimes. <laughs> I learned that when a turkey has an injury and there's blood on the feathers, that the other turkeys pick at that spot until the turkey dies. They won't let it scab up and heal. They pick at it and pick at it, gobbling all the while until the turkey falls over dead. Now there's a message in that to all of us. Do you pick at the scab? It takes twice as long to heal when you pick the scab off because it starts bleeding again and a new scab has to form. The possibility of Gangrene is always there and blood poisoning, always there, which can lead to death. Picking always hurts the picker more than it hurts the picked. Stop picking at the scab. Close the account. Let it heal in the name of Jesus what this is all about. Now somebody says, oh, I'm willing to do that, but man, they are so out of step. What are you looking for? Perfection? Were you born perfect? Were you married perfect? Are we in a perfect world? Well, the answer is obvious to all of those questions. No. Then why do we become discontent when we see imperfections? She doesn't squeeze the toothpaste right. She's always taking a whole pier at the top. She's supposed to squeeze it from the bottom. Well, there's a simple solution to that. Get two tubes. They're on sale anyway, two, four. Even the druggist realizes it's better to have two than one. Because nobody's perfect. It's the way it is in our house. She's got hers over there. Mine's here. She can squeeze it any way she wants to. I know how to squeeze mine. <laughs> Solves a lot of problems. You understand what I'm saying? Nobody's perfect. We all have our view of things. So let us not be looking for perfection. I, I thought of Jesus' example in John 8. You remember the story of the woman 
taken in the very act of adultery, and they thought they had Jesus in a box. Boy, they had him locked in now. Taken in the very act. He knew the law said, stone her to death. And so they said, what does the law say, teacher? As they stood there with these big boulders. And he just disarmed them all. He said, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Ah! They almost dropped them on their toes. And when you're wearing sandals, that's serious. <laughs> but here was the sound of stones dropping to the ground. Boom, 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 all over that place. And they walked away. And the woman and Jesus are now alone. And he said to her, where are thine accusers? And she said, there are none, Lord. And he said, go thy way and sin no more. What a savior we have. What a wise teacher he was. He acknowledged in that moment what the law did not take into account. That we are not perfect people. There is none righteous, no, not one. And we all must come under the blood of Calvary and not expect too much of one another, helping one another, forgiving one another. James has a wonderful word on this in James 5, 16. He said, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The Phillips translation reads this way, you should get into the habit of admitting your sins to one another and praying for one another so that if sickness comes to you, you may be healed. Now what is the brother of Jesus, James, saying? He is saying, close accounts. Confess it to one another. Get it out into the open. Don't carry it any longer so that you may be healed. Deal with it. Don't put it off another day. Good advice. In our unhealthy combat with each other, God has established through love a way of healing. Otherwise, hostility grows and grows until we hear things like this. You never do anything right, you numbskull. Why did I ever marry you? You are incredibly dumb and you're getting more like your mother every day. You know what I mean. Foolishness comes rolling out of our mouths. It is not the nature of Christ to live that way. It is from the earth earthy. Let me help you by reminding you there is no perfection down here. Be patient and kind is what the Bible says. Don't be rude. Don't even think evil. Close accounts with my kind of love. I was so deeply moved and impressed when a young mother as many young mothers would do, put her little baby in a room 
unattended while she had to go to the basement to do some washing. And while she was in the basement, that little child got into some adult medicine. And when the baby was rushed to the hospital, it was dead on arrival. The father was notified, and as she waited for him to come, these horrible thoughts were going through her mind. What will he say? She was the apple of his eye. How will he ever forgive me? What will he do? And then he arrived. And this young father, the husband of this young lady, walked into that room, quickly moved to her, wrapped his arms around her and drew her to himself and said to her, Darling, I love you. He could have done many things, but he did the one thing that gave her a protective coating in that hour of tragedy. He practiced 1 Corinthians 13, Here was a man who knew how to love God's way, a supportive person, a man who closed the account from work to that hospital room where she was waiting, a man who knew not to carry that thing a moment further and enveloped her with God's unending kind of love. Love brought us together, and love can keep us together. It overlooks a multitude of sins. Now, the second thing I would like to share with you is some practical suggestions on how to make it work. And I will only have time to deal with two, but they are enough to keep us busy for this week working on. Number one... Be committed to Jesus Christ. I am aware that in a company this size, there are any number of you who are not now so committed. You have not given your life to Jesus Christ who said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. It takes an experience with the living Christ to become a true peacemaker in the home, at the job, in the church, in the community, peacemakers, people who have made a commitment of themselves to Jesus, who have made a conscious choice to receive him as Lord and master of their life. I want you to know you don't grow into this thing. You make a conscious choice. I was reading a friend's book, called The Manifesto of Love. And he pointed out in this book, nothing gets better by neglect. The automobile doesn't. Your body doesn't. Your marriage doesn't. Nothing gets better by neglect. If you don't put oil in the car, the car will quit. If you don't take care of your body, your body will quit. If you don't take care of your marriage, your marriage will quit. So why do you think 
that someday you're going to grow into a relationship with God through Christ. You don't grow into it. You make a conscious choice. Paul said, now is the accepted time. Today is the day of salvation. Never a better time than right now. You make a choice to follow Jesus. The songwriter said it. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Are you neglecting your eternal soul because you have not made a conscious choice? Have you thought that by coming to services here, one day it's just going to happen? Some magical formula will be spoken and suddenly you will pass from death unto life. Suddenly you will be a loving person. All of the past will be taken care of. It will just happen. It doesn't work that way. While the preacher preaches to you and the Holy Spirit talks to you, you say, today I'm going to make my choice. And when you do that, all heaven stops and comes to your aid, and the miracle of salvation happens. You must be born again. That's step one. Step two, forgive and forget. Carrying a grudge, keeping hold of revenge, trying to make somebody pay, this is not God's way. One of the things I have never heard anybody speak about is the horrible effects of television. When the stories over and over again portray getting even. Time and again, I'm going to make them pay. I'm going to get even. I'm going to get revenge. Whether it's in a Western or a detective story, they travel the world over to make somebody pay. No wonder we have all of these long-standing accounts that have never been closed. I'm going to make them pay for what they did, for what they said. Hear me today. Jesus stood in front of those who were questioning him about how many times they had to forgive. And he said, 70 times 7. Now, if your arithmetic isn't too good, that's 490 times. Now, he might as well have said 1,000 times 10. It would have meant the same thing. Because by the time you get to 490, you will have forgotten the count. And there is no way that you can forgive 490 times and still have an enemy. No way. Because this is what the Bible says in Proverbs 25. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For so you will heap coals of fire on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Now the Living Bible puts it this way. This will make him feel ashamed of himself. I love that. Heaping coals of fire on his head is interpreted. He will feel ashamed of himself. Now, how many times would it take to give bread to your enemy and drink to your enemy before he feels ashamed of himself? Wouldn't take too many times. So Jesus knew when he said 70 times 7, nobody, nobody would ever have an enemy if he would practice that. 
He would always have bread. The 16-year-old preacher's son, Methodist Church, Youth Week, his dad said, put the motto out on the sign front. This is Youth Week. He didn't bother to go look. On Sunday, people were coming in saying, Pastor, have you seen what's on the sign? He said, well, no. I, my son took care of it. I didn't think to look. He went to look. It said, love your enemies. It'll drive them nuts. I like it. That's theological. That's what Jesus was saying. They will be so ashamed of themselves that they will no longer be your enemy. You will win them by God's kind of love. Now, as I thought and prayed and prepared, I couldn't get away from Joseph in Genesis 42 through 45. What a story. Joseph. Sold into slavery by his brothers. Put in a pit. They took his coat of many colors, dabbed it in blood, brought it back to Jacob, their father, and said, he's been devoured by animals. Joseph is gone. Of course, that's what they wanted because Joseph saw things that his brothers didn't see. And what he saw didn't really put them in too good a standing. But you know that Joseph eventually ended up in Egypt. Though he was put in prison, charges trumped up against him that were not true, he eventually proved himself the wisest in the land and became the premier, sat on the throne doing the work of the Pharaoh, controlling the whole kingdom. For 20 years he was separated from his brethren. For 20 years he never laid eyes on his father, whom he loved dearly, or any of his brothers, or his home, far off Egypt. And then there was a famine in Canaan's land, and Jacob sent some of his sons into Egypt because he heard that there was plenty in Egypt. And go and see if you can bring back grain. And so in chapter 42, they arrive in Egypt, and in verse 7, it says, Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. Wow. What a moment. Twenty years he had not seen them. He was a teenager. When he was put in that pit, he was probably now 36, 37 years of age, had matured, had changed, had been under the Egyptian sun. They didn't recognize Joseph. And for one thing, they sure didn't expect him to be there. And so he acted as a stranger to them and spoke roughly to them, and he spoke through an interpreter, though he could understand every word they said. Uh, wouldn't that be fun? When they would turn and whisper, he, he could understand them. And the highlight to me is verse 11. These characters, they said to Joseph, we are all one man's sons. That was true, but listen. We are honest men. Oh, what a joke. We are honest men. And they're talking to the fellow they sold and told their father was dead. We are honest men. Why, he ought to just put him in a hole and cover him up. Right? He didn't. 
As you read on, he wanted to know about his family. Is your father alive? Strange question from this stranger. He turned himself away from them and wept. Found out he had another brother, Benjamin. Didn't know he had another brother. Now when you get to chapter 43, the famine was severe, and so Jacob finally has to send Benjamin back with his brothers because this man wouldn't give them anything until he saw this younger brother, Benjamin. It develops until he sends them away again. He puts a silver cup in the sack, which brings them back into the city. And in verse 13 of chapter 44, they tore their clothes, and each man loaded his donkey and returned to the city because in the sack was the cup, Benjamin's sack, and they felt they were going to get killed for sure because there was this cup in Benjamin's sack, and they hurried back into the city. Then you come to chapter 45, and it says, Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried out, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. Now, there's been no movie ever so dynamic as this part right here. And he wept aloud, and the Egyptians and the house of Pharaoh heard it. They heard this man who had received such respect weeping so profusely it was heard throughout all of the palace of Pharaoh. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Can you imagine? Their mouths dropped. Does my father still live? And it says they could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. Why couldn't they answer him? Because there was an account open. It had never been closed. They had opened it. They lied. They sold this boy, knowing he would probably die, and good riddance because we're not going to bow down to him. But his dream came true. Now, how would you handle it? You're Joseph. You've been separated 20 years. You've been in prison. You have served as a slave. You've been removed from everything familiar. What would you do now that you have the power in your disposal, or at your disposal, to wipe these brothers off the earth. They shake. They, they're scared to death. They couldn't even spit. And this man looks at them and says, God meant it for good. You meant it for evil. And then one by one, he has them come. And he throws his arms around their necks, kisses them, and weeps. One by one, brother after brother does the same. Weeps profusely. His weeping is heard throughout the palace. He's crying as he closes the books on this 20-year saga. He shuts the cover of it. As he says, go home and get dad and bring him to me.
And what a thrill it must have been when one day the servants come running to Joseph saying, your family has arrived. Seventy souls have arrived. They're on the wagons. And he rushes out to embrace dear old Jacob, his dad, that he has not seen for 20 years. It would have never happened had Joseph not had the spirit that I'm trying to impress upon this church during this month. You cannot survive keeping the books open. You cannot live healthily. You cannot live successfully. You cannot live happily when you keep the books open. You must love God's way. We laugh at the little boy who was reprimanded by his father during the day. And when he knelt for prayer, he said his prayers and he prayed for everybody but one. And then he looked at his father and said, I suppose you noticed I didn't include you. Well, we laugh, but really it's sad because we live that way. Paul said it's time to become a man and put away childish things. The child will say, I suppose you noticed I didn't include you, but a man says, I will close the book. And because I am a forgiven person, I will forgive. And we pray it, do we not? And we sing it, do we not? Help me, O God, to forgive those who trespass against me. As I pray, I will be forgiven for those I trespass against. One thing to say it and sing it, it's another thing to live it out, isn't it? I close with an observation made at a business where obviously the people weren't happy to use in the restrooms these blowers that dry your hands. We put those in here to our building when we built because paper is very expensive, but we were getting so many complaints that we finally had to put in paper also. You know why? We're not patient enough to let the warm air dry our hands. It's much healthier, much more sanitary, and much cheaper but no, we've got to put both in because we're not patient. And it was so in this business, and the boss was getting tired of all these bills, and he finally put on these blowers. Press here for a message from the boss. Clever. And of course they pressed, and the air came out. They dried their hands and didn't need the towels. And I found that out. I thought, I can use that in my sermon. What 1 Corinthians 13 is saying to us, press here for a message from the boss. And all month, we're pressing it. We're hitting that button. And we're asking the God of heaven, the God of eternity, to talk to us about love. To talk to us about closing the books 
to talk to us about forgiveness. And I pray that we will not get away from one of the most powerful passages of Scripture in this whole book, a message that teaches us how to live, that does not deal with heredity, that does not deal with education. It just deals with our ability to let God's kind of love flood into our being and let it be lived out in our home, in the workplace, in the church, wherever we go. In a world filled with hate and getting even, God says, love is patient and kind. Love is not easily provoked. Love doesn't even think evil. Love will win when everything else fails. I ask you to press the button and get the message from the boss. Shall we bow in prayer? And I ask that nobody leave until we have pronounced the benediction that we might all move in now closely to our Lord. Father, by your Holy Spirit, speak to this great congregation this morning. Talk to us from your word and from your heart, Lord. Oh, Jesus, don't let anybody leave this place without settling accounts. We cannot afford the burden of envy, the burden of jealousy, the burden of getting even. Help us to lay it down. And Lord, for those who have not made a personal commitment of themselves to Jesus, let them know that they can't grow into it. They've got to make a choice today, conscious choice. If he died on that cross and he rose from that grave and he is the Savior, then I've got to receive him into my life in order to have eternal life. May that decision happen all over this place. While our heads are bowed, let me ask first, how many of you need to close some accounts as we have been preaching God's word? You've been receiving truth. In your heart you know that you've got to act upon it, and you need to begin right now with this prayer time. Would you raise your hand and say, Pastor, pray with me and for me. I want to close some accounts. I realize I must. Yes, all over this auditorium, hands are being raised, front and back, up and down. God bless you. God sees your hand, and I'm going to pray for you in just a moment. And I thank God for your response. You're going to be so much healthier and happier when you settle this thing once and for all. But I have...